Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity to help airmen, and really any service member or anyone interested, to build grit, resilience, mental toughness. What are unique methods and practices our guests use to overcome struggles? What does it take to build grit? Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today we have Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Humphreys with us. Jamie Humphreys survived one of the deadliest insider attacks in Kabul, Afghanistan in 2011. Nine Americans and at least one Afghan soldier died in a shooting by an Afghan military pilot. The event was covered by CBS News. Lieutenant Colonel Humphreys, before we get to talk about the story of your survival, tell us a little bit about yourself and your military career. Yeah, sure. I was born in a small town called Monroe, Washington. It's about 30 miles north of Seattle. I decided to go to school, of course, like most of us do. I went to Central Washington University. I met my wife there. We weren't satisfied with just coming out of college and getting a job. So I always wanted to travel and she wanted to travel. And we thought the military was a good option to be able to do that. I knew I didn't want to be in the Marine Corps. I knew I didn't want to be on a boat. So it was between the Army and the Air Force. And luckily, I chose the Air Force. And although I had my degree already, I came in as an enlisted airman and uh, was a security forces member. And that was in 1998. And then about three years into my first tour, I wanted to try to earn a commission. So I applied for a commissioning program, um, officer training school, and I was originally denied uh, my first application. Times were a little bit more competitive back then to get a commission. Um, so I applied again for another program called the uh, Professional Officer Course Early Release Program, and I was accepted. So I went back to school for a year went through ROTC three and 400 level classes and then was commissioned following that program where I came in then as a commission officer in the public affairs uh, career field. Why public affairs? I had down Intel and communications as my first and second choices. I thought those would translate pretty well to the outside world if I didn't enjoy my next term. I threw public affairs down as a wild card, as a throwaway number three, because I like to talk, I think. I had some misconceptions, I think, about what it was, but I got it. And I can honestly tell you that it's been perfect. It's been great. And I think it's one of the best career fields that we have in the Air Force. So, yeah, so came in, uh, went to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. That was my first job, um, home of the F-15E Strike Eagle in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And then went from there, you know, and proceeded in my private life to have four sons uh, with my wife. And so they're ages 20, 14, 10, and 5. Yeah, many jobs. Seymour, the Pentagon, um, Barksdale, gosh, Minot, uh, deployed several times, Mildenhall, and now New York City, where I work as the National Engagement Media Engagement Director in New York City for our career field. What does that mean? Can you tell us about the job? Sure. So what we do is we welcome distinguished visitors in that come into the city. For example, the chief of staff, the secretary of the Air Force, if they make a trip up here, we work to get them on a news broadcast of some sort, um, maybe a speaking engagement with a think tank, maybe a speaking engagement at a college, 
maybe discussing areas of interest with a civic group or into different kinds of entertainment, like on A&E and stuff like that. So we work together quite frequently if projects overlap. We're constantly pitching stories on behalf of the Air Force to try to get our airmen on television. Very interesting. Uh, One of the things that you've mentioned in your career that you traveled quite a bit and you've been stationed in multiple locations and you've been deployed a couple of times. So tell me about your deployment experiences. Tell me about your deployment to Kabul, Afghanistan in 2011. Sure. The first deployment was 2002, if I recall correctly, and that was to the Combined Air Operations Center at Al-Yadid Air Airbase in Qatar. Times were a little bit different. Now I understand there's a new KOC. It's a whole new facility and located in a new place, but they still do essentially the same thing. And so that was a little strange because that was the kickoff of Operation um, Iraqi Freedom. And so things were new and things were moving quickly. That was an interesting time. I was a second lieutenant. My next deployment was 2008 to ISAF, International Security Assistance Force, in Kabul as well, downtown in the city. That was for six months. And then my third deployment was in uh, 2011, and I'll, I'll come back to it. And my last deployment was to—now, I wouldn't consider this a deployment, but the Air Force does. It was to Tampa to support CENTCOM and information operations within um, CENTCOM at MacDill Air Force Base, which was a fantastic experience. So 2011, I was deployed Air Force Global Strike Command, and my job was to be assigned to the 438th Air Expeditionary Wing in Kabul, and that's at the airport, Kabul International Airport. There's two sides to the airport. There's the Afghan and the American side. One side is a coalition compound. The other side is run by the Afghan Air Force. The only thing that separates the camp is like a large, I'd call it a stream, but then a fence, a perimeter fence. So most of the coalition operates on the coalition side. We're actually assigned in that mission over with the Afghans on a day in and day out basis. And our job there is to train them. Uh, mainly in operations and maintenance, learning how to fly a fixed-wing or rotary-wing aircraft. However, you have people like me that are training in public affairs. You have a, a lawyer training his counterpart or her counterpart. You have other people in staff agencies that are training their counterparts. But mostly it was maintenance and operations, teaching Afghans how to fly and maintain an aircraft to fight the Taliban. And it's a year deployment, and I arrived, I think, think in February of 2011, if I'm not mistaken. In addition to that, there's a training that you must go to. I can't speak with authority about how long it is because I forget, but I want to say it was like uh, six to eight weeks. And mine was at Camp Dix, uh, Lakehurst, up uh, McGuire Lakehurst in New Jersey. So mine was about that long. Pre-deployment training, you mean, right? Yeah. And you're training, you're pre-deployment training for that period of time with all the people that you're going to deploy with and work with. You deploy it together. For the next year. And you deployed as a PE officer to train your counterparts. I did. So my job there was to train Afghans. And then I was also in charge of doing the public affairs for the wing. So if I get media queries, stories, photos, I did all that as well. So two things. And in the meantime, I volunteered to work at a place called the Thunder Lab, which was training Afghan, uh, potential Afghan pilots. English. So at nighttime, they lived with us in a compound, and we're helping them speak English to get proficient enough to fly an airplane because the international language of flight is English, and that's what they were trying to do is get proficient enough to come to the States and finish their pilot training to be a certified pilot in the Afghan Air Force. Did you have much close interaction with your ANA counterparts? Yeah, oh yeah, every day, every day. 
So that was my job. They had days off, just like we do. I want to say their days off were Friday and Saturday. I would say four or five days a week, you're constantly training. Now, I had a staff of a photographer and a video person as well. So they were you know, trained in their specialty. I trained in my specialty. But we were constantly over with our Afghan counterparts just to try to improve and train. Tell me about the incident. This is now 2011. I don't remember what month it was, but it was in the beginning of your deployment. Two months in. Right. Yeah, that was the tough part. It was April 27th, so I had only been there a couple months. You know, I was there long enough to understand. I had learned the rules of the road about the camp and what was going on and, and gotten in a good groove and was excited to be there and, and accomplish some things. So I was scheduled to go over at 8 a.m. to meet my counterpart. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Bahadur, and he only has one name. This was a daily occurrence. You know, I had a schedule with him, and I would go over and meet with him. And Your day typically starts out with talking about family and having tea with the Afghans. So I had planned on an hour or two with him because that's how long it takes. So your first half hour is just talking and shaking hands and stuff like that. So, But I was scheduled to meet him at 8 a.m. And my interpreter, when I came into the office, told me that Colonel Bahadur was canceling our meeting. But then we got a, a second call from one of Colonel Bahadur's staff members who was looking for office space. And he needed my help. He thought that I could go over with my interpreter and help him get some office space. And at the time, I thought this was a good thing. And he was looking, trying to get a desk. I wanted to do everything I could to help him. So I said, sure, let's go. So me and my interpreter, Yama, dropped what we were doing and we walked over. I want to say that process took roughly 30 to 40 minutes. We did that. And then from our American compound to that compound was roughly three, 400 yards or something like that. And these are Afghan buildings that we're going into. So you're going from your part of the compound to now to ANA compound. Yeah, you walk over to the Afghan part, which was close to the American compound. I mean, I want to say they're really close. And, you know, you're encouraged to interact and be close. And I mean, that's that's how you're training. So Right. And that's your mission, right? Yeah, that's your mission. You trust them. They trust you. And life goes on. So we looked for office space. I thought we made progress. And I said goodbye to the Afghan soldier or airman, I don't remember who it was, and Yama and I talked for a few minutes, and then I saw four people walking towards the building. I recognized three out of the four. So I walked over, and it was a nice April day, and we exchanged pleasantries, said hello at the front entrance of this building, and then I walked away. It had to be at that moment that the attack occurred, because I walked to the next building, which was probably... I want to say 100 yards from there, and there was a radio call that there were a lot of people in trouble and shots fired and, and things were happening. So there was mass confusion, as you can imagine, in this situation. So I was there. I was a captain at the time, by the way. I, I didn't mention that. But I was with a lieutenant colonel named Lieutenant Colonel John Howard. He was listening to the radio, and we both were shocked that what was happening. There were reports of two gunmen that were shooting and that our airmen had come under fire. Your immediate response is to go help, right? But at the time, we weren't required to carry an M4 rifle on the camp. So all I had was a 9mm pistol, and I had 30 rounds is all I had. I looked at Colonel Howard, and I said, what do you want to do? What actions do you want to take? And he said, I want to secure this building that we were in. We had students in the building. I think his concern was to secure the building, protect the students, protect each other, 
we had a British soldier with us and we had some American U.S. Army soldiers assigned to the building we were in. So that's what we did. But it sounded like your lieutenant colonel was really calm and that was a very good course of action. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I knew him. He was calm. This was his building. So his weapon, his long rifle, his M4 was there. So he pulled that out. Uh, the British Army officer had a long rifle, too. So he pulled that out. I only had a pistol, so I had that out. Now, the Army soldiers had their long rifles, too. So I went with one to the corner of the building. He saw something and fired off a couple rounds at a target that I'm still I'm not sure what he was firing at, but he saw something. And then I went to the back of the building because we were vulnerable. It was a big building we were in. I just wanted to keep making the rounds to make sure that this building was secure and somebody wasn't coming in the back because we were told that there were multiple shooters making their way through the camp is what we heard on the radio. What was going through your head at the time? You know, quite honestly, I pulled out my phone and I sent a text to my wife and I said, whatever you hear on the news, I'm okay. Because I knew whatever was going on, she was going to hear about it. And I just, A. So your first thought was to comfort her? Yeah, of course. And that's all I did was send a quick, probably 10 word text saying that I'm okay, and I let that go. And then I wanted to be with the other folks in the compound to make sure we were okay and just look in each other's backs because there were multiple entries into this building. We just weren't sure. You know, your adrenaline kicks in, and you don't know what's going on. Well, it turns out the report of the two shooters was false, which is more often than not the case um, with these situations. And so we sat there, and we secured this building for probably eight hours. Meaning that typically it's one shooter? Uh, well, you just don't. I mean, your first reports are always mm -hmm. just not accurate. You know that there were two shooters and they're making their way through the camp. That couldn't be further from the truth at the end. But we didn't know that. I mean, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know if the students in our building were, were turning on us. We, we had no idea. So we just wanted to protect each other. And little by little, other members of the camp started trickling into our building. So what was going on was they, they created about three pickup points for people to gather in so they can you know, evacuate us. They didn't want multiple buildings. They wanted us all to gather in a few buildings so we could get back to the other side to safety is what was going on. So, Who took charge of all the directing of the traffic? Uh, well, it, it was Colonel Howard's building, so was him. Um, he was the highest.